and shut the metronome off because that is so annoying. Why okay, testing, 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 testing. I should be fun. I am a musician. I always have the metronome on. I'm a musician. I've got the metronome in my head. <laughs> like Michael. If you say so. <laughs> it is true. Michael Hilton. You, you know the difference Hilton, between. Sorry. What? Do you know the difference between rhythm and a metronome? A metronome means that. Of course. If I tell you, if I tell you I to play exactly 65. If I tell you to play at 65 BPM, is that fast or slow? Okay, fine. You're using the fancy terminologies. No, I'm not. If you if you don't use a metronome, you can't time the clicks. So the metronome is used as my it, it it gives me the information I need so that the timing is correct. I'm not saying you don't have good the rhythm. Timing, or that you don't I, have I a can good see, beat. I can but, me- but you understand the purpose of metronome? Yes, service? yes. But I can I understand the purpose if you're playing with other musicians and you each need to make sure to be. Oh yes. Eh. Oh, that too. That Let too. Tell- but I'm talking about. Michael about- Hinton, who is a world-renowned drummer who drummed on Broadway for, I don't know, 40 years, and he taught, he's a professor and I don't know what else, he heard me um, play percussion, and he was floored, and he said, you don't need a metronome. You're the, you have a metronome you in need- your head. No, I'm just you repeating don't- words. Libby, I want you to understand something. You can be as tight as a metronome. But, again, when you are creating music, especially if you're working with other people and you're recording music and you're doing music with other, you're collaborating. That I understand. You must work with a metronome. Okay, you because m- everyone metronome because, I, ever, because everyone has to be on the same pace. That's what I'm trying to tell you. When you're going to tell me. It's mathematics. It's mathematics. That I understand. I'm not talking from the technical standpoint because everything has to match well, up I and am. make sense. That, well, I, I am. Not. I have a metronome. I have a metronome clicking yes. all the time because I'm a professional musician and I I'm need it. It's one of my tools. I'm a professional musician too. Right, but you don't use a metronome, and I do. No problem. Let's argue semantics. <laughs> I'm an unprofessional professional musician. You're a professional musician. You're the most unprofessional professional musician I've ever met. <laughs> Can we just throw this not, into the podcast? Although it's not, we're just schmoozing now. We haven't even started. I the think podcast. this is an immediate unsubscribe from twenty percent of my audience. So I don't let's just think focus so. on things. No, I think they're going to actually want to hear me sing and play music. Then maybe they'll go listen to my rebind. <laughs> it's not first of all we're in the nine days so there's no playing music now not now i'm not talking about now talking about second of all you cannot days. hijack my podcast to promote your stuff if you want to promote your stuff get your own podcast today we're going to talk about I'll think about whether i want to invite you onto my podcast okay go it's a risk i'm willing to take <laughs> we'll you still have to put your song on on Spotify, and I, until you do, you're not having a podcast because that takes time. It's the nine days. It's the nine days. I can't. I can't put. No, it's the nine days, and then there's going to be Hanukkah. Then there's going to be a snowstorm, <laughs> and then your uncle's going to get married, and then you're going to come to Israel. Then you're going to Florida, and then your computer is going to break, and then you're going. Okay. I have a brand new computer. It can't break, ever. Hi, ever. Libby. Hi. How are you? I'm good. It's been a while. But actually, it's not been I a while. I am so impressed with us that we got it together. Again. And we are here talking. Finally. Again, again. To each other about, yeah, about nice things that we want to share with an audience. So yes. hi, everyone out in podcast world. You Hello. sophisticated people who know how to use your phones and leave <laughs> five-star ratings under podcasts. We have a little surprise for you. Livy is here with us because I was going to call her anyways. And... Ask her to tell me about her trip to Vienna, her two trips to Vienna. Yep. 
Correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I simply couldn't do it without recording it because I, even though I haven't heard the details, I am sure you have a story to tell. So I'm going to sit back and, and I'm going to grab this uh, beer that I got in the Ritz Hotel with Jamie Geller. You're not going to share it with me? It. You don't share Nobody gets this. Can you attest to the people that I have a, a beer bottle with my name in it? Guys, <clears throat> people, <clears throat> people of the podcast, Hanala has a gorgeous little, what color is it? Red, pink? It's hard to see. Through Do the- you know that I'm going to have to cut out your ahums? <laughs> Please don't ahum on my clock. That's why right. I restarted again. Okay. Can you just put yes, that in? Yes, I know. Yes. Okay. So... You went to Vienna. Now, did you know that my grandfather was from Vienna? No, I did not know that. Which yes, part? and I'll tell you a. I'll tell. I don't know which part, but I will tell. Don't be all challenging and scientific now. Listen, I don't know. I'm practicing for my podcast for when I open up a podcast, and I think whether I want to invite you onto my podcast. Go on. Okay, so my grandfather grew up in Vienna, and tragic story. His father, my great grandfather, was actually hit by a car. And killed in Vienna. Oh, my gosh. That is sad. And not only is it sad, it was ridiculous because there was only one car in Vienna before the war. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> like, right. seriously. How did that happen? How many cars? Though? How did I that? I don't know the details. I don't know the details. But I will tell you that my grandfather came from Vienna. He was a terrific guy. He had a beautiful Yiddish. Um, and that's all I know about Vienna. And I do know that you were there now. Hang on, you were there now because you're involved still in the whole refugee crisis, the Ukrainian refugee crisis because of the ongoing war that's going on there while we keep while we move on with their lives, people are still, you know, suffering. living in a war zone. Yes. And suffering and being displaced and it's just really painful to watch a country and the Jewish people in it fall apart. So you have been there for the people who need the Jewish people that can manage it to help them and to... The truth is, I don't even know why you were there. Maybe you were there to go skiing. Why don't you tell me a little bit Maybe more about I went your trip? Skiing. Libby, Maybe. <laughs> why did you go to Vienna? Why okay. did you go to Vienna? I'm sitting back in my chair now, and you're going to tell the world your story. And if I interrupt you, it's to say something funny or because I have a question. So or because this is the Weekly Squeeze. Or because you're Hanala. This is the Weekly Squeeze. <laughs> can you say... This is the Weekly Squeeze with Hanala and... Libby, hello. All right, <laughs> I, I already said hello, right? Anyway, let me take a step back and uh, introduce to you the, even how I even got to this whole Vienna situation. Um, so when the as soon as the war started, obviously a lot was going on in different countries surrounding Vienna, uh, surrounding uh, sorry Ukraine, and uh, like Eskandam got involved. People started collecting money for different uh, areas of this cause. How you know? How can we help the refugees? So my one of my brothers, he's a big Askin, and he, he um, a group of people reached out to him and said, "Please, please, please, we need your help." And he said, "What kind of help do you need?" You know, he has a lot on his plate. They're like, "Just come to the border, and 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 we'll we'll figure it out from there." And he. To people, to people listening who might not know what an Askin is, explain what an Askin actually is. It's not um, so clear to every community. An Askin basically is a person who is very, very deeply involved in whether it's big issues of a community or um, uh, or issues within individual people's lives. You know, like that are it's it's under wraps. It's not. There are different types of Askanim. There are Askanim that are really are are known to the world and people know about them and they're written up in... in Would you say the word is activists? 
No, uh, not so much. No, um, well, yeah, and they're, uh, they're in a sense. Sorry, religious activists. They're, it could go into the category of religious activists, but an activist is more like outspoken to try and make change. Mm-hmm. An askin is more okay. There is a problem. What are we going to do now? Here's what we're going to do. He pulls his strings and gets it done. He's the fixer. He's the fixer. The fixer, the fixer man. <laughs> the doctor of the situation. So I call my, him the fixer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So your brother's the fixer. So no. my brother, he's 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 people who know him love him. He's a very humble person. Just people, and he's not loud. He does things very under wraps because he deals a lot with individuals who their lives are private, but they're dealing with whatever the whatever type of hell they're dealing with. Um, so he's very quiet about it. But people know him automatically because he's known automatically because he does a lot. So um, there was a small group of, I think, Satmar guys who got together and they wanted to help and they were just desperate. They needed my brother's help. Finally, finally, they convinced my brother to go down to the um, Hungarian border. He, he went he went from border to border. He visited a number of borders to see what's going on over there, to see where is it relevant to, to bring in the Jews that are, that are you know, fleeing from mm-hmm. Ukraine. And this was right in the beginning of the war, the first and second week of the war that they started obviously coming out. He uh, went to assess the situation. Yeah. Anyway, um, through doing that, he discovered that in Vienna, there is an unbelievable situation going on. There's a guy, his name is Maxim, and his, uh, his real name is Menachem, so we call him Menachem, but he's known as Maxim. He's just a regular guy. He's about Shuva for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, and he lives in Vienna, and he has been helping, you know, Chabad and whatever. He he's, does well in business, Baruch Hashem, and he's able to help other Jews. So he just has always been quietly helping other Jews. And all of a sudden now he started realizing um, Vienna is, I don't know if the closest, but very close to um, Ukraine, to the Ukrainian border. So a lot of people, especially the people from the more from the richer neighborhoods, started coming to Vienna because Vienna is a, more of an upscale place to be, place to live. So automatically, you know, if they had these more expensive or lavish lifestyles, they geared towards going to a place like Vienna, right? Um, But where do they go? So all of a sudden, these refugees, Jewish refugees started arriving, and some of which, he didn't even know whether they're Jewish or not. We have to start an operation here. So he's unbelievable. He gathered up a team. They developed a whole system of, um, you know, how to define whether a person is actually Jewish or not, because someone who's not Jewish It's not so clear-cut. It's not so clear-cut, yeah. And they can find other resources. And there's a lot of resources, right? Yeah. So I can go into detail about it, but I'll I'll brush over it for a moment. I just want to know how you got yourself ready in time to make a flight to Vienna when half of the time you're not even aware of what time it is. Like, how did you and your daughter make it to the airport in one piece? Do start from the beginning. So you're packing your stuff. Your brother's like, you're coming to Vienna. No. And you're thinking, should I bring my, should I, one second, should I bring my camouflage sweatshirt or should I bring my fancy sweatshirt, the tie-dye one I made myself? As long as and it's like a sweatshirt. you're like debating. <laughs> but you're not like, noticing and, something. Are you not, are you noticing something? I deliberately um, had to test you. You're not. I'm not wearing a hoodie. Congratulate me. Oh, okay. That's that's nice. I guess because it's the nine days and you no, can't. I'll tell you why. Because I, I actually, actually work during the day. We usually do this at night, so I'm dressed. Ah, <laughs> I see. Anyway. All right. Going so back to the story. You packed up your hoodies. No, you got, I'm not up to, the to there yet. I'm not up to there yet. My brother got it, was uh, had a meeting with, with Menachem and whoever else. And 
he realized that the most the most important thing that they currently needed at the time was a proper kitchen. They were cooking food for a thousand refugees, three meals a day, um, so that they eat kosher and they have where to be and where to feel at home. Wow, wow, wow. Unbelievable. So within, listen to this, Mika Amchi Yisrael, people trust my brother very much. <clears throat> so as soon as he, you know, started to fundraise for it, within, I think, less than two days, he had the full amount of money. We're talking, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars to do, to put together a commercial. To help. To a commercial, no, specifically commercial. Make a commercial kitchen. kitchen. Yeah. And then obviously he, you know, from there onward it went, you know, he, he bought mezuzahs for the apartments that they got for refugees. And so how much time, in how much time has your brother spent on the ground in Vienna oh, a lot. dealing with this crisis? I'll tell you what, he comes and goes. He has also been to Erzisrol. He has also been to Hungary. But in Hungary, it's not as active as um, in Erzisrol. They're opening up a whole situation over there for those who want to go to Erzisrol so that they have a place to be that's Erlich and and fully kosher and, you know, properly set up and they're opening um, um, schools and chedorim and and One minute, this is in Israel? How do I sign up? This is a... I, I can find out for you if you. I'm serious. I'm saying for myself. It sounds great. Oh. Wow. <laughs> Is that the vacation you want to take? <laughs> anyway. No, I know. I'm just laughing. But the so the, it happened. The, well, the, the, yeah. The, the 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 I'm saying the a bunch of times and you're interrupting me. <laughs> the crisis is happening. Your brother is on the ground, bringing solutions. You know, including money, including an actual kitchen, so that these refugees who are completely displaced and their lives were just destroyed. At least they can have food and a place to sleep and just right. a little bit of, of attention while they deal with this new chapter of their lo- of their lives. Right. Where where did you and so, your daughter come into this picture? Okay, so as I'm, you know, my brother was sharing this with us, with our family, and he knows I'm particularly passionate about these types of things. Um, I started telling him, what do you mean? I have to help out. How could I not help out? What's this? Let me know. So uh, at some point he was talking to um, Menachem and uh, he just mentioned, you know, if you need help, it was it was getting closer to Pesach. Um, and it was like at that point, I don't know, two weeks or one and a half weeks to Pesach. And he's like, if you need help, I'm just saying my, my sister and, and niece could uh, go out there and help you for Pesach because he had to set up a whole entire Pesach for a thousand refugees. Right. right. Anyway. And, and I remember now when I, when I spoke to you of Pesach, the crisis was in full swing. Like it was, yes. it was a serious situation. I'm not saying it's less now. I don't know. I'll exactly. tell you the difference. Day by day. I'll tell you the difference between then and now. Now, um, the government is aware of basically where the Russians are going to start. Um, you know, where the front line is going to move towards, and they're able to warn people a little bit more in advance. At that point, it was like people woke up on the morning of February. What was it? Twenty six, twenty four, or twenty six? Forgot. And they woke up to the bombs. The war had begun. Yeah. So they literally escaped from from the ashes and the blood and the horror of the war. So that was like a one split second to the next kind of thing. They had, I don't know, wow, a half wow, hour wow, wow. now to pack their bags. But before I talk, talk about that, I just want to say, and all, so anyway, so we're like, okay, let's see what happens. All of a sudden, my brother calls me up. <clears throat> he goes, Libby, you ready to fly? And I'm like, What? And he You're says, like, I'm yeah. born ready to fly. I just <laughs> exactly. need three hours to pack. No, <laughs> my bags are packed. No, I'm kidding. My bags are not packed, <laughs> but I'm always flying. And so I said, sure. And uh, Menachem called me up and he said, listen, um, come. So it was right before Pesach. At that point, it was like, I don't know, the week of or 
the week before Pesach. And he says, okay, come. Tell me when you want to come. I'll get you tickets. For the first half, you'll be, you know, he told me I'll be in the central station over there with the Chabad rabbi. I'll help out the rabbi and the Revitzin and, and, and be with the refugees and help out where, where needed. And then for the second half, I can join him. What happened was he, okay, so for, the, for one and a half months or two months before that, the whole entire time that the war has been going on, he basically stopped everything. He stopped his work, his business, everything to dedicate his time to the refugees, which is amazing. His partner is incredible because his partner... Your brother? No, oh, this guy in this Vienna. This guy in Vienna who's running the show no. over there. And therefore, his wife was saying, please, I want to spend Yantif with you. You know, the kids need you. He said, okay, fine. We're gonna." He promised her that he'll take her up to the mountains, which is gorgeous, the Austrian Alps. And I think that's I think that's my desktop right here on the, on my computer. It's yeah. either that or like it's not it's either that gorgeous. or Montana, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> There's mountains with snow, so I'll just pretend. <laughs> you should come. To... So they went skiing, or they went no. or They went up preemptive. <laughs> they went up, and no, but he said, but but there's one condition. Um, I want to bring up a few refugee families. So of course she said yes because she's an amazing woman, and so he told me. So you guys are going to join me for second half up there. In the end, it was just, I had too much going on. I couldn't go for the first half of Pesach. I told her I'm just going to come for Cholomoyed. Like the day after Pesach, we'll fly out. We'll stay for Cholomoyed and a little bit longer. So I went straight up to the mountains. Now, I want to explain something to you about the operation in Vienna. Um, here we are. We're talking about Jews who were fully established in Ukraine wherever they lived, whether Kharkiv or any of the other um, areas of Ukraine, they were fully established. They had their... Explain to people, because I think most most people haven't gone to Ukraine. Now, you've gone a number of times yes. for for Elul and or for Rosh Hashanah to Uman. You know a lot of Ukrainians. You know, I suppose, the mentality, the layout of the land. Yeah. So tell people listening what... I mean, obviously we see images coming out of Ukraine, but there is a, per, a perception that it's like, you know, Russia and Ukraine are like the... No? What am I saying? Hello? <laughs> what? The shtetl. The shtetl. Yeah, okay. So there are certain areas that are extremely shtetl-like, shtetl-esque or whatever, or they are actually shtetled. Right. It's not... This, but then, right. It's not America right. or Tokyo... It's not. However, there are certain areas like Kiev and other places that are very not shtetl. They're they're very, they're, they're, it's proper city life. And, you know, they are established with their own businesses. Again, it's not going to be Americanized. It's not going to be like uh, the European countries, but it's very well established, which... Uh, Smartphones and malls yeah, and yeah, yeah. schools and restaurants yeah, and life. exactly. Especially in Kiev. I'm not talking about Oman. Oman is, well, the only reason Oman, Oman is established... On the map. Or on the map is because of the Jews going there and everything. Um, but for instance, when you go to um, Mezhebish to be at the Baal Shem Tov, you're, you're purely in a shtetl. You know, it's slowly, slowly becoming more of a little bit of a town or whatever you want to call it, but that's probably but it's also... like stepping into the storyteller or yeah. those old seditious yeah. stories. Yeah, when I walked right. through Because those... they, they took place in Ukraine. I mean, right we there. all have... Exactly. Anyone who has family that came from Eastern Europe, like my, my grandparents or on the Russian side, on the Polish side, on 
you know, this was the landscape. These were the people. Yeah. So the Baal Shem Tov is my grandfather. We recognize it. Right, yeah. right. So you, when you go there, you have a, a connection almost. I have a very deep, not almost, a very, a very deep connection. You can feel, you feel a difference between going to, you know, a tzaddik's cave and then going to someone who's, you have his blood running through your veins, literally. It's very humbling. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's about Ukraine. So, so there are certain areas of ukraine even though they're let's say little towns on the on the outskirts but they are well established towns the people over there have very rich houses you wouldn't believe it but they do um, so they're spread they're spread out and stuff but they're still living a rich lifestyle those types of um, towns are the people that are in vienna now currently most of them are from those towns that i just described mm-hmm. um, anyway so I just yeah so, because the Jews usually the Jews usually the Jews usually make the most of where they are right and they're not not going to be peasants they're going to be successful you know achieving people on some level and this whole thing is just crazy shocking because just you know who who, who makes war in two thousand and twenty two exactly like, yourself I have make a- reels not war <laughs> right I have um, I know a few people obviously who live there in Uman specifically, and one of them was telling me, I spoke to him the week of, the week before the war started. Maybe it was even the week of. Yeah. And I was asking him, you know, what, what, are, what are you planning to do? Do you have a plan, like a backup plan? And he starts, he's like, he's like, Libby, there's not going to be a ground war. They'll fight, they'll fight around the Kiev area to get the, cap- like they're not going to fight on the ground. He, for not for a split second did he believe that this is what's going to happen. And then I spoke to him the day before, and he was actively traveling out of Uman to go to Kivret Sadikim. He may have even, I forgot where he was going, maybe even out of Ukraine, to go to Kivret Sadikim the day before the war. So he wasn't there that morning when they all woke up to the bombs, and he couldn't go back to Ukraine. He's now a refugee, and he's doing unbelievable right, I don't get things. Into, I don't want to get into the details because nobody has the full picture, but you're telling me that... The Ukrainian Jews were not prepared, did not know this was coming. Exactly. Just, one morning there wasn't a war, and one morning they were they were bombs being dropped yeah. on their homes and yes. their parks and their schools and synagogues and everything. Yeah, literally. So, so this yeah, so that's extremely extremely intense and devastating. And Very. you are a firsthand witness to what they're going through. I mean, you were you're yes. an eyewitness, and you can you can tell their story. So tell people. I want it. So let me tell you. So let me describe what's going on there. So let and me. What, and at, oh, by the way, one second. Not just because we want to get about it, because a it's important to know what our fellow Jews are experiencing. Absolutely. And b some of us are in the position to help. So you know, don't message yeah. me. I'm busy. Message Libby. She'll she'll, she'll help you. <laughs> yeah. Get my info <laughs> from info from Hanala. Um, okay. Uh, so let me just first briefly describe to you what I found over there uh, in that place uh, in, the, in the mountains. I should repeat that probably. Should I say it again? Because it's okay. Let me first describe to you what I found when I arrived to the Austrian Alps. Um, this man, Menachem, he rented out a basically a mansion. It's, it's like a cabin type, cabin style house but huge, with tons of rooms. So, like apartments, so to speak. So each family had their own apartment. Beautiful, overlooking wow. the Alps. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was gorgeous. Wow, wow, wow. And he purchased... Okay, so his mentality is as follows. He said, I'm used to a rich, comfortable lifestyle. I know that these people are coming from that type of lifestyle. And he quoted where it says, which obviously I don't remember where it says, written that the, way, the, the, the best way to do tzedakah is 
to do it according to what the person is used to. So he said, I don't want these, these refugees, they're suffering anyway. They have nothing. They came out with nothing. They left everything in Ukraine. I want them to feel like they are not lacking. When they're sitting at my table, they're going to feel like there's, they're being served. They're chefa. They're yeah, chefa. exactly. And I literally, have the chills. Yes, you should. I because have the chills. It's an unbelievable operation. I shouldn't even give away the story. I'll tell you why. Okay, whatever. I'll tell you soon. On the podcast, I'll tell you. Um, so what did he do? He purchased um, brand new dishes, uh, glassware, cutlery, everything brand new. First of all, he needed brand new because of Pesach, but also for the refugees up there and for the refugees back in Vienna. He said, anything that you're going to see on this table here, which is my table, right? Because my family's sitting here. Every, the refugees back in Vienna have the exact same things. The exact same now, expensive how, what meats. are the numbers we're talking about here? Because this sounds like a phenomenal budget to provide a lot, for. I mean, a lot. most people could barely make Pesach for their own, you know, their I own know. crew. So, how believe many me, I was I, we're up there, up there in the Alps, or in this general? whole operation I've, and up up in the Alp, up in the Alps, both. In general, he served and prepared for between eight hundred and a thousand people, refugees. Wild and fully no pa- no plastic plates and no uh, plastic forks and knives no 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 every person got two forks one for the fish one for the meat every person got two knives one of the, you know what I'm saying a wine glass and a juice glass and it was unbelievable. wow 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 it was wow. so and, and what was Yomtev festive? Were people joyful? Extremely. Were people crying? Were okay, people so, emotional? So what was it like? Okay, great questions. So I was, I didn't know what to expect. I was expecting, you know, who knows what. So I arrived there and it was during Chalamoid. So he also, he had paid, by the way, most of this comes out of his own pocket, just FYI. He's an incredible man. Um, the, the children of the refugees were out on the, on the Alps skiing. So we joined them. Yeah, like he treated them to that. We joined them. So they were wow. all in a good mood. And then, so they were all exhausted. But then when Yontif came, that's when things like start kind of to hit. But instead, when I, as I saw these families coming to like the main, the, the main uh, quote unquote dining room was happening in his apartment with his family because that's where they were cooking and preparing. They walk in, you had to see their faces and... I want to tell you, I want to pause this for a second. I want to tell you about one particular family. As I was schmoozing with Menachem, he was telling me, um, you know, different stories and experiences of, of, of his encounters with the refugees and how they came to him and everything. He tells me about a text message he received one night, and this is literally like a week in, or a week or two into the war, when he was already established with the team, but still not yet fully, you know gets a text message from this man who he doesn't know and the person is like how can you do this i'm traveling for 3 days with five children and 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 you know i'm i'm getting a, just a, a tiny little hotel room with two rooms how, like if you can't do it don't do it i don't have food and Menachem is, was telling me he's like I, I i couldn't believe what i'm what i'm seeing you know i i know what i'm providing to the refugees it's not possible something is wrong he was he was it, it hurt him it really hurt him mm-hmm, so he said mm-hmm. i took a moment and I thought to myself, and I said, the only explanation is that this is a man who's talking from extreme pain. And he decided right then and there, I'm going to call him. He called up the guy. 
The rest is history. He told me, he told me he, they're, they're good friends. The story was that this man is from Kharkiv, and indeed he was traveling for... Th- My grandmother's from Kharkiv. Oh, yeah? Kharkiv, Kharkiv. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how to pronounce these things. Um, Kharkiv. Kharkiv. Kharkiv, okay. Um, and he, they were traveling. They were traveling for three days. Um, their oldest son ended up going to Tzfas with other boys as the war started so he could at least learn there in yeshiva. And the rest of the kids have twins. They have two-year-old twins. Two, uh, not two. No, they're actually three and a half. Sorry. And then a little baby who were, I don't even know how they manage. They are such lively kids. And he was one of, if not the richest, um, definitely Jew, living in Kharkiv. Wow. He built. And he just walked away from his whole but, legacy, yes, his but, whole dynasty, his everything. Yeah, but <sighs> listen to what he walked away from also. He and his wife, I saw those videos, built practically with their own hands and their own money a huge bismedrish, a huge shul for the community over there. I mean, they did so much tzedakah in that in that in the area where they lived. They had to leave everything behind. They had, I don't know, an hour or two hours to pack. So he was just coming. You know, you know what the crazy thing is, by the way? Mm-hmm. Do you know what the crazy thing is? Besides the fact that we have six minutes till we have what? to start to zoom again. Oh, gosh is that the Jews have gone through this so many times yep. all through the years. Like, this is not a unique story to the Jewish, you know, the, the, the Jewish history, people the and, the Jews, yeah. and the Jewish history, into Jewish history, exactly. And it's so upsetting to hear that for some reason, I know this is something that, that happened to Ukraine at large, but when you just think about Jews being traumatized in that way, it just brings up a lot of like yes, yeah, not good feelings. One of my friends, one of the people who lives in Uman, but is now actually he moved from Uman to Odessa, but he's now a refugee. He's very active with um, saving, with rescuing Holocaust survivors that were stuck in Ukraine. So he's saying also he was telling that these um, Holocaust survivors are very shaken. That it's this is like a repeat to them. Because it is in yeah, a way. Yeah, for sure. It's very sad. It is. Anyway, it is. so this man, so M- Menachem tells me this story, and then he says, you're going to meet him. He's here with us. I brought him up to the mountains. So I was like, you know, my, I was like anticipating um, the moment I'm going to meet him because this is a man who is, who's suffering so much, he left everything behind. Mm-hmm. And at some point, in walks a man who I understood it must be him. And you could see on his face that he's so filled with pain. But guess what? He's singing. He's singing. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, he's singing and like doing those little movements of, you know, when you dance along to your own singing. And I'm like amazed. And throughout the whole, so I got into discussion with him at some point, obviously, but throughout the whole yontif, he was singing, and I asked him at some point, later on, and deeper into the yontif, I'm like, you lost so much, I mean, you're here with, with nothing except, Baruch Hashem, you, your health, your family, and you're singing, how, how, how can you do this, like, how are you able to sing, he looks at me, he points, he lifts his hand like that, he points up to Hashem, and he goes, I sing because I'm hoping that by bringing simcha into my heart, he will send me brachas. Hashem, in other words. Bracha. Bracha, you yeah. Brachas? Bracha. He, bracha, yeah. whatever. He, it was in broken English. It's not 
verbatim, like it's probably one word on or off, but this is basically the concept of what he said. I was so, you're so telling floored. Me his, his, his Pintala Yid just came out and, and okay wait so, not even his pintle yet his so, no his, no his, he, his his connection to hashem like, exactly you know, no he okay so there's so many different on stories hashem. this particular man is religious he's about tshuva and his wife are about tshuva i'm not sure for how many years they are so strong in their yiddishkeit that it's just unbelievable so he is anyway in touch with hashem very deeply he's a very spiritual person and his wife also i have so many other stories to tell you of refugees you don't understand. Okay, you know what? So let me cut to the chase. The second time I was there now for Shavuos, I decided I'm bringing all my camera gear and all my audio gear, and I actually started filming a documentary. Um, nice. The rabbi over there, yeah, the rabbi over there and Menachem are very supportive. They love the idea, and they, they connected me with the right refugees, and I sat for an entire day because I was supposed to film for a few days, but... It didn't work out. Somebody got sick. You know how these things work out. Uh, you know, logistically can change from one minute to the next. But I got to interview um, eight people. Four of them are from one family, which is this family I told you about. And when you'll mm-hmm. hear what they went through until they, they were there for two weeks of bombing. When you'll hear what they went through, I mean, even, even just the, their young daughter that I interviewed, and she was just describing to me when they finally were in the... In their vehicle, by the way, the only thing they were able to, they, they had left with them of all their riches and possessions is their the latest model Mercedes that they came out with. That's all. Um, but anyway, when they were finally in their vehicle, you know, I asked her, you know, when he went through the streets, what did you see? So she said, dead bodies. This is a this is yeah, this is a twelve year old girl, twelve and a half. So I'm just I'm just giving you like a little hint of what I'm even talking the about. The trauma and the yeah, yeah the trauma of yeah. it all. Yeah. So So this is one second. So let me just recap for a second. You went to Vienna, you spent Yumtif in the Alps, and you witnessed a Jewish Gvir spend a tremendous amount of money and attention on Ukrainian Ukrainian refugees. And then you decided that you're going to come back and you're going to film a documentary and you're going to share with the world, you know, hopefully soon, maybe sooner than you put up Rebind on Spotify, <laughs> but you're going to show the world what what they went through. Yeah. Now, what, so I, I, I want to start I want to start another Zoom. And in that Zoom, I'm going to ask you what ultimately is the long game? Like, what is the long game for these families? And, you know, what's the plan for the future? Okay, so let's start another Zoom. Don't go anywhere. This is good stuff. This episode has been brought to you by Daily Giving. www.dailygiving.org slash the weekly squeeze. The Tzedakah Fund of the Jewish People. Such a beautiful initiative that's just growing every single day. Thanks to Dr. Jonathan Donath, a chiropractor in White Plains, New York, who had an epiphany in 2018 while dropping a dollar bill into the tzedakah box at his show. No matter how much money I give to tzedakah, he thought, I still get a mitzvah every time I put a dollar in. How can I guarantee that I do this mitzvah every day for a buck? So he looked for an organization that was doing this. He couldn't find one. So he and a couple of his friends built a website called dailygiving.org, and the rest is history. Become a daily giver. You can sign up for the month. You could sign up for the year. You could sign up for one person. You can sign up for all your family members. If your child is celebrating a birthday, perhaps sign them up and put in their email address so every single day they'll get a notification in their inbox 
that a dollar was given thanks to them. 100% of your dollar goes to a worthy cause. Yes, you can get a tax-deductible receipt. You could sign up if you live outside the United States. And be sure to check out on their website all the amazing organizations that benefit because of all the dollars that we're donating every single day. There are currently 10,861 daily givers. Join the club, dailygiving.org slash the weekly squeeze. So my question is, we have a very fluid situation, a very desperate fluid situation that requires a lot of funds and a lot of manpower and a lot of amuna um, and a lot of, you know, hope and prayers. And it involves the Jewish people getting together and helping because that's what we do when we have sisters and brothers who are suffering. And as you're sharing with us now, these Ukrainian Jews have suffered tremendously, like beyond anything we could actually imagine living here in America or Israel, like true traumas. So what, what, what's the future for these, for these families? Are you going to stay involved in their, in their lives? What kind of responsibility does your brother bear for being involved? Like what's the practical, what does it look like down on ground zero right now? So what's amazing, so what's amazing about this is, um, and that's what I was hoping to um, portray in the documentary, um, except I need to continue. I paused it because <laughs> of funds. <laughs> um, You'll get to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's amazing is that this is literally um, kind of restructuring Jewish Jewish life in Europe. What what he what they're doing over there is they're not just saying okay come I'll, I'll give you a place to like sleep a hotel room and like some food to eat no. They're getting apartments for these people that they can live in. Uh, I don't know if permanently, permanently, or for a year or two until they get settled. I don't know those exact details, but they're giving them apartments. They're finding jobs for them. They're connecting them with government funds so they can receive whatever pos- they possibly can, each individual family. Um, Menachem is now focused. Are they, are they helping them leave leave Europe? L- leave Europe to where? These people don't, okay, so so part of my conversations with these people is they don't want to leave Europe. They don't want to leave Vienna, most of them. They still dream of going back to Ukraine, it, which is very heartbreaking because I don't know how realistic that is or isn't, but they want to go back. I interviewed, one of the people I interviewed on my documentary is such a hush of a person, a, a rabbi who lived in, of course, I don't remember at the moment, which uh, where he lived in Ukraine. Um, but anyway, he was a Malamed. And he he keeps thinking back to his students, who he calls his children. So I asked him, would he ever plan to go back there? And he said, if, you know, when the war ends, if there's, there's still, I think, a Chabad rabbi in that area, he, he didn't leave. Um, if he calls him back and wants him to teach again and help him reestablish... He's 85% sure he's going to return. Do you think that the Jewish people kind of forgot about the Ukrainian Jews over the last 20 years? Like, have we slacked off in that way? Or are we? is this something that we just all I'll have tell, had coming? I'll tell you what. Uh, in a way, maybe you're right. Maybe the Jews of the world for a little bit forgot about the Jews of Ukraine because I was quite frankly shocked to hear how many Jews have been living in Ukraine. I didn't dream mm-hmm. that there are the communities that there actually are over there, or were, unfortunately. How many people? Tens of thousands? Hundreds of thousands? I'm not sure of the number. Not 100,000, but, but 
thousands, thousands, thousands for sure. Thousands and thousands. For sure, yeah. for sure. Because only in Vienna, tens of thousands. Yeah, only in Vienna, there's 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 a thousand plus, and in his community, I'm talking about, and he would he would take he would um accept more refugees if he had the funds for it. He just doesn't anymore. Like he's literally taking out of his pocket, and he does get some help, but very very minimal help. Um, I wish that I could finish this documentary because I would want to bring awareness. But the problem is I have so to... So who's actually... Who's funding this documentary? Who's, who's doing... It's a huge production. That's exactly... That's the problem. Nobody's funding it. It's my passion project. And that's why tickets are extremely expensive. I have to go back there and interview more people. There's n- numerous people who want to speak. They want to tell their story. And I want to represent what's happening over there so the world knows first of all it's historic it's literally jewish history it is so important to know this and to hear this and to see it and and in 10 or 20 years from now our children and grandchildren they need to know what happened to the ukrainian jews at this time during this war it has to be documented and it has it's a story that has to be told yeah and the problem is that i have to go back there numerous times i have to fly back and forth and i just don't have the means for it it's so let me so let me put this out there if there is somebody if there is somebody who is listening that feels very passionately about this whole Ukrainian situation and wants to help get in touch with Libby and help tell the story and help get her project off the ground so that you know she's she could use her talent to do something very very important and meaningful to a lot of people and their lives so reach out and L'chaim to that. Here I am Thank holding you. up my beer. L'chaim to that. Good for you, Libby, for just good for you for recognizing where where you're needed and Thank how you. you could serve your the Jewish people, the serve your community, serve your you know just people that you care about, and tell us more. <laughs> uh, no, I really appreciate what you just said and the shout out and the you know telling people. Um, about this because as a filmmaker I know the power behind the visuals and the way the way you present a story through that visual and through the words of those who suffered and those who had to escape bombs or live with those sounds or their next door neighbor's house got bombed and so on and so forth and those whose um, friends or family members have you know got killed in the war so there is a way to represent it through video through a documentary that is so powerful and so important for the world to see. So thank you for that. And yeah. This is not the first time you've worked on a war story or right. you know, a, a documentary about painful times. Um, you worked with the redhead, the redhead of Auschwitz. Yes. Remind me her first name? Um, uh, Ro- Rose. Right. So you worked with Rose from the redhead of, of Auschwitz, the big, huge Instagram account, and she's... She has a book. Yes, film. What I had such as chos. I had such as chos. Um, what happened was, um, Hasidim in USA had been wanting to take photos of her, and we were discussing this and figured we'll do a collaboration. He'll do photos. I'll do video. But it was very difficult to get to her because she was she was you know not so well and she had her days that she wasn't up for it. But finally, Baruch Hashem, we had that opening. So. We went there, and he took the photographs, and I, you know, took the videos, and I created the documentary, which, by the way, all of you should go and check out on YouTube. Put in either the Red Hat of Auschwitz as the title of the. I'll put a link. I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, perfect. Or if you forget the name, you put in Libby Schwartz, and it'll pop up. Um, you'll, you'll see it. So 
basically I, I put together a documentary and a little while later, like a few months later, she passed away. So I I just feel very blessed and I want to document more Holocaust survivors that are still around. It's interesting because my grandmother was documented by a Spielberg company funded uh, project about, I want to say 30 years ago, maybe even more. Wow. And a camera crew came came to my grandmother's house and and a a wonderfully polite, sweet interviewer and they... Cap, they, they had my grandmother tell the story of how she lived before the Holocaust and what the Holocaust did to her yeah. life and how she came to Montreal. And it's the only documentation of her story. Wow. And she is a woman who was deeply, deeply traumatized, had a horrific experience witnessing things that no human being should witness. And she, you know, she shared that. And now I have it. I actually shared a small clip and I put it on social media where she talks about how she doesn't want to be a victim and she doesn't want to light candles and cry about it and talk about it. She wants to do something and she had 10 children and she had 10 children. Wow. See, that's the thing with videos as such, the world gets to see and be inspired. I mean, it's amazing. How did she even rebuild and have 10 children? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like like this is true. This is real inspiration because we live in a a society that's void of so many important values that the Jewish people have that the world used to have. And you forget what people went through and the integrity that that they had and the things that really matter Mm -hmm. and the belief system that helps the Jewish people survive, you know, tragedy after tragedy. At the end of the day, every Jewish tragedy is felt. And, and like a personal, you know, Holocaust, because unfortunately there's no shortage of, you know, terrible things that, that happen in our, in our lives. So we, you know, what's my point? The point is that when we pay attention to people's stories, we could learn from them and apply those lessons and, you know, derive strength from them and, and use that in our lives as well. Absolutely. And and speaking of the Reddit of Auschwitz, she was an unbelievable woman of such in, such strong emuna. I'm sure your grandmother so also, cute. obviously. She was so cute. Exactly. She was adorable too. So, And it's funny because when I got there, um, I didn't even have time to set up proper audio equipment or even a tripod or anything because she already was talking. I didn't want to miss a split second of it. So I'm holding that camera for, I don't know, 40 minutes or an hour, however long we got to be there because then she got tired. And it was so tough, but it was worth every second. Worth every second. Wow. That's really, really beautiful. Yeah. It's interesting because I had a neighbor downstairs in our ground floor apartment, Mrs. Mintz. She was from Brooklyn. She was at, you know, in her upper 80s for sure. But she was totally with the program. She had a curly shaitel and cool glasses and she was hip and we talked about the Yankees and <laughs> she had her shopping cart and she was impeccable and brilliant. Yes. And I brought her upstairs to record lines for Bella Bracha. And I no had her way. repeat the lines to be the grandmother in the video. And when she was sick, her children messaged me like, can we get the link to the video so we can listen to my grandmother, watch my grandmother. And I'm sure that's something that they appreciate it, wow. they, that they appreciate to have. But I think in a world where we're so busy making reels and like filming ourselves and filming all these all this stuff, sometimes we miss the bigger picture. Sometimes when we're taking in so many small clips, when we're taking in so many, um, what's the word, 
Um, I know exactly the word I'm looking for. But let me give me a second. When we're, when we're, everything is so pretentious. So to hear people stripped away of everything that they have, stripped away of whatever whatever reality you know they had in this world, whatever security, and completely rely on Hashem, like that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. And it doesn't always have to take. It, it should never take a war to right. remind us. Right. But in our lives, when we panic because something that we thought was owed to us disappears, we tend not to, you know, we're angry. But then you see people like this. I mean, if they can appreciate that everything comes from Hashem, even the war and everything is meant to be because Hashem loves them, I mean, it's mind-blowingly powerful. And not only that, but... In that documentary, you'll get to see how they describe the moments, those moments when they were, you know, hiding in the deepest closet of the house in case a bomb hits the house and and it collapses, it should hopefully hit them the least and so on and so forth. What happened inside of that closet? Which I don't want to say because there has to be some element of surprise with this story. But no, 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 I know, I know. It's like something that's very personal. It it has to be told in the right way. In the right way, yeah. So this, it's true. And not only that, these people. For instance, after I was done filming this particular man that I told you about, um, and I shot the camera, he started showing me the videos of when they did the Hanukkah. What would it be called for a shul? Say that again. Say that again in your Hasidic accent. Your the (laughs) Hanukkah. I don't know. How do you say it? Chanukas. The Chanukas. Oh, it's Chanukas. Yes. To all my Hasidic listeners out there, we rock. Thanks. Um, We love you. We love you and we love them. It's all good. I know. Chanukas. Chanukas. I liked it. I liked it the other way. New. Chanukas. Chanukas. Anyway, so so then he looks and he just like kind of mumbled halfway. He's like, yeah, I used to just hand out millions of dollars in one shot, and now I don't have I have to rely on someone else's money to buy bread in the grocery store. And then he just kind of said it in passing, and then he he looks up to Hashem, like up to this, you know, Hashem, and he goes, "But I have my family and I have my health. I don't need anything else." I mean, this is a man wow. who. Like I told you, was established. I wish I, I'm telling you, I, if, if I could find a way to continue this documentary to afford the time to travel down there, interview all the other people, do the do the editing. And not only that, don't forget, it's in Ukrainian. So I have to hire a translator because I need to translate word for word. So it's very, very exact. I need to understand it when I edit. And so everyone. So I don't know. Hashem will send some, something my way, I hope, uh, so that That's I can continue this. That's a big undertaking. Yeah. That's and a big undertaking. Me. Well, I... I am so um, glad that I that I had the opportunity to hear exactly because we didn't talk about this. We talked. No, about, we didn't. We've spoken a lot, but we never. I never really understood. I thought you were peeling potatoes in a in a soup kitchen. Like I really oh, didn't understand. I, wait a second. You did that too? <laughs> uh, yes, I made potato kugel. Nice for the yeah for the oilim manyantiv. Hasidish What's your potato, potato kugel recipe? What's your potato and overnight? Recipe? I can't tell you. He's Menachem is driving me crazy for it. He's like, you have to tell me the recipe. I said, nope. Don't worry. Back, I'll, I'll never be able. To, I'll never be able to. to uh... And then his wife. And then one day, his wife. One Friday, his wife uh, told him, Menachem said he's in the mood of potato kugel. She said, listen, you'll have to get Libby back here in order to get potato kugel. <laughs> that was cute. People, there are so Ukrainian refugees. 
Chalishing for Libby's Kugel. You don't understand what mysterious nefesh this is. Get this girl and her team to Ukraine. Okay? Amen. Hey, oh amen. All right. My friend, to be continued, you actually have, hang on, before we go, yes. you actually have um, more stories for me. Yes. I, I can't even imagine how many. Yeah. And you told me the last time we spoke, hey, you told me, or two times ago that we spoke, that you are sitting on top of an incredible story that's gonna that's just going to enrapture us all. And I want to hear that too. It is a mind-blowing story that you literally only read like in the storybooks and the Masabihir. You know what I'm saying? It's a crazy, wow. crazy story that I was personally involved with, dealing with, and it's still ongoing, which again I, I don't want to tell you the details halfway. It's a story that I'm gonna wanna publicize somehow. Uh, I'll talk about it here on the podcast. I'll probably write about it in the Yiddish, um, uh, you know, magazines, whatever they have, and and maybe the English ones. I don't know. Maybe even talk about it in a video. But this is a story that has to be told. Um, what do you mean? The Weekly Squeeze. The week- Duh, we're gonna, that's we're gonna do it right here. We're gonna do that's it right where here. we're gonna start. Yes, for sure. <laughs> All right. I'm gonna let but you there's go. But there's, on, there's more on Vienna also, gonna, by the way, next time. I want to hear more. I want to hear more, but um, to be continued. We can't just keep people's attention 24 hours a day. I'm going to hang yes, up on can. you on Zoom. It, we could, <laughs> but we need to talk about more Bubba, my sister's Vienna thing. is okay. intense. Um, I'm going to hang up on you and then call you back on, on FaceTime. Bye. Okay. <laughs>